James. James chapter 5. If you're visiting with us today, this is just our custom here to exposit through the Word of God. And we're coming here to the end of the book of James and to the last chapter in James chapter 5. Let me read as you open there to chapter 5. Let me read verses 7 through 10 for you. There, James says, Be patient, verse 7, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We can stop right there. James 5, 7 through 9. I've titled the message, Patience and Endurance. Patience and Endurance. J.C. Ryle, that great man of God, said this. He said, there is nothing that shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. He said, we forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Health is a good thing, Ryle said, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Ryle said, anything, anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. End of quote. I think that's well said. Nothing reveals our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. The famous preacher in the 19th century, Philip Brooks, said, and it was said of him that one day Brooks was pacing the floor kind of like a caged lion. And a friend asked him, what is the trouble? Brooks replied, trouble? He said, the trouble is, is that I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. And uh, I think we often feel that way, do we not? Sometimes we're in a hurry, but God is not. I mean, trials, as we think about that subject, or difficult circumstances, are part of our Christian life. And what James is going to say in the Word of God this morning is that we are in need of patience. Now, as we find ourselves here in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, we're dealing with that section on our response to the wealthy in verses 1 through 6. We noted there a couple weeks ago that the wealthy are likely the unbelievers in this particular community who are persecuting those who are poor and they have stripped them of of their resources as it said in 5 1 through 6 and so here as we come to this response it's a test of our faith it's a test of our faith as we deal with difficult people and so what he did in chapter 5 1 through 6 is he gave an exhortation to the rich unbeliever And now he comes in verses 7 through 11 and gives an exhortation to the faithful believer. He turns, as you just think of this passage, from the unbelieving rich to, as a general scheme, the persecuted poor. 
fact, Kent Hughes in his biography said this about this context. He said the Jewish church was being kicked around the Mediterranean Sea like a soccer ball. The verses which immediately precede our text are a seething denunciation of their rich oppressors who had reduced them to miserable poverty. It's a very, very difficult situation. In fact, look back at chapter 5. He says to those in verse 3 who are the rich unbelieving, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And he tells them in verse 6 that you have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. And so he's going to give a word now to us in light of that context. Now, as we walk into the text this morning, the theme is clear. The theme in this section is patience in the midst of trials and in the midst of difficult circumstances. In fact, glance down at the Bible in verse 7. You'll see that he uses the word patience twice there. He says, be patient, verse 7, therefore, brothers. If you look to the middle of verse 7, He says, he talks about the farmer who waits for the precious fruit from the earth being, and here it is a second time, patient about it. He tells us, look thirdly there in verse 8, you also, like the farmer in essence, be patient. And then you'll note in verse 10, he says, as an example of the suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. And so he mentions the word patience four times there in 7, 8, and 10. He uses a similar word, glance down at verse 11, when he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So four or five times he's using this word patience, and then one, at least this word for steadfastness or the word endurance. I mean, when you think about that theme of trials and patience, the Scripture is filled with difficulty regarding this life in which we live in. In fact, troubles and trials are inevitable. Job declared this, he said, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. I mean, as we're born into this world, we're born into trouble. In the New Testament, Jesus said, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when others He says, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice, your reward is great in heaven. But he's talking about a blessing to those who are persecuted. Paul even said of this world in which we live in Romans 8, 18, he said the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. But when he talked about this present time, he mentions the sufferings of this present time. In fact, Peter, writing to the church that was scattered there abroad in 1 Peter 4.12, said, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And so we're going to need patience in light of these trials. Now as we walk into this passage, what does James say to these believers by way of encouragement? What does he say to us this morning by way of exhortation? 
And lest you and I respond sinfully to difficult circumstances, he really issues forth a challenge not to lose your patience in trial. In fact, look down at verse 7 now. He just comes right out there and says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. That word for patient is a very interesting word. It's a compound word. I'll share it with you. I think it might help. It comes from two words, macro and then the word thumia. In other words, what does it mean to be patient? It comes from the word macro or the word macros, which is the op- opposite of micro, is it not? Which is, is short and so forth. But something that's macro or macros is long. And then it's built off a second por- par- portion of a word called thumos. And thumos is the word anger. And when you put those two together, it was used in the Old Testament, was this word for patience, to speak of the long suffering of God. That's how the word was used. In fact, in the modern vernacular, back in the Greek language, the word patience meant to have a long fuse. Okay, It means that you were patient. You had a very long fuse in comparison to somebody who has a very, what, short fuse and can blow up in the midst of trial and in the midst of circumstance. See, what patience is, biblically, is the ability to bear trials without grumbling. That's what it is. It is a spirit which actually might have the right to take revenge, but refuses to do so. What patience does is it never retaliates. It never cracks under pressure. It's a very interesting word. Look back just for a moment in James chapter 1, will you? Since this is the theme, I thought we should just unpack this a little bit. It's a little different than this word, and I want to show you the difference. Remember in 1.3 when he was talking about trials, and he said, For you know that the testing of your faith produces And here in the ESV, it says steadfastness. It's the other word in the NASB for the word endurance. That's a different word than the word for patience. That word there, steadfastness or endurance, has the the, the idea of remaining under the trial. And when you look at that text, in fact, look at verse 3, that it produces steadfastness. Look at James 1.4, and let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect. When the scripture uses that word, it's usually talking about enduring difficult circumstances. In other words, you need to remain under the trial here in James chapter 1. However, as you look back now at James chapter 5, just as a word of comparison, that word for patience refers to enduring difficult people. I want to make that clear. One is enduring the difficult circumstance. That's the word for steadfastness. But here in chapter 5, when he says in verse 7, you be patient, therefore, brothers, it's talking about having a long fuse with difficult people. And both are very vital for believers. Jerry Bridges regarding this word patience, explains how it works in everyday life. He said this, The aspect of patience 
is the ability to suffer a long time under the mistreatment of others without growing resentful or bitter. He said the occasions for exercising this quality are numerous. They vary from malicious wrongs all the way to seemingly innocent practical jokes. They include ridicule, scorn, insults, and undeserved rebukes, as well as outright persecution. The Christian, he said, who is the victim of office politics or organizational power plays, must react with long-suffering. The believing husband or wife who is rejected or mistreated by an unbelieving or believing spouse needs this kind of patience, end of quote. It's the ability to have a long fuse with difficult people. And so the question that I asked this morning as we walk into this text is, how do we endure life's trials with unflinching patience? How do we do that? How do we take this scripture? What is James going to say to us on how to endure these trials with this kind of patience? And what he does in verses 7 through 11 is give us three guidelines that enable us to be patient in difficult circumstances. We're going to first, and for our time this morning, remember the Lord's coming in verse 7 through 9. Then next week we'll look at that on reflecting on the Lord's servants. And then thirdly, verse 11, recognizing the Lord's character. Okay? Here's some guidelines. How do you live in patience with difficult people in trying circumstances? Well, first... Remember the Lord's coming. Look back down now at the text in verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, and here it is, until the coming of the Lord. I mean, here is the argument to enforce his exhortation to us. You are commanded, exhorted in the scripture as I am, to be patient to be long-suffering, to have a long fuse, and you are to do that until, the text says, the coming of the Lord. Now, what is the coming of the Lord? Obviously, that's a rich biblical word there when it talks about the coming of the Lord. The word just is, it's the Greek word parousia, and the word for coming, and it just spoke of someone's arrival. It, It spoke of someone's presence. In fact, in just secular Greek, it was used to speak of the arrival of a dignitary, the arrival of a king, that not just his arrival, but his presence was there. And when you look at that word in the New Testament, it speaks, of course, I think as you would know, of the physical bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So here's the exhortation. You and I need to be patient until the coming of the Lord, until the second coming of Christ. Obviously, we've had the first coming at his birth, and we celebrate that hopefully all year round and certainly at Christmas time. But the scripture is replete with the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his person, by his physical, if you will, bodily return, will come back to this earth. In fact, look in verse 7. It says, until the coming of the Lord. Look at verse 8. For you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, here's a third reference to it. The judge is standing at the door. And so he is coming. It's his second coming. You know, that theme of his second coming occurs more than 300 times in the New Testament. In fact, if you put all the scriptures together in the New Testament, every 13 verses, if you've averaged it, would speak of the second coming of Christ. And what would this have been like for that early church to receive this letter from James under the Spirit of God and under his authority? That his coming, is what he's saying, will put an end to their opposition. It will put an end to their suffering. And it will also bring God's judgment to those who were abusive towards them. Now this theme of the second coming is a major theme of the scripture. In fact, in Matthew 24, I think some of these might come up on the screen. There it is. It says there in 20, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming? The early church and the disciples wanted to know when his coming would be. He said in Matthew 23, 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. As quick as you see lightning flash from east to west is going to be that parousia, that second coming of the Son of Man. In fact, later in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, That day or hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. And then this phrase, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming be of the Son of Man. And you have these scriptures. There's more. First Thessalonians speaks of that. For who is our hope and who is our crown, our joy of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? I mean, the scripture is clear that Jesus Christ will be in bodily form returned to this earth. The next scripture says this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, that's the parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. All over the New Testament, continue on, it says this in the next slide. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, Thessalonians speaks much of the coming of the Lord. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's just so many. It can go on. Second Thessalonians 2, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He wanted to tell them it had not come at that point. Second Thessalonians 2.8 
when it speaks there that the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Speaking there of the Antichrist. And there's many more. First John, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at shame at his coming. And so you can see that the scripture is just replete with that thought that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And what's amazing in those scriptures, in light of his coming, there is a call, if you will, to holiness. And we looked at that. Establish your hearts blameless, it said, in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. It talked about God Himself sanctifying you entirely and may we be preserved complete until He comes again. So here's what James is saying to you. You need to be patient. And he's saying, you might be saying, well, how long do I need to be patient? You need to have a long fuse until the coming of the Lord. Meaning this, there may be some things in this life that will not be fixed, right? You need to have a very, very, very long fuse. You need to be able to suffer in the midst of trial, knowing that one day when Jesus Christ comes, He will completely reverse the fortunes of those who were abusing those believers in this context. So trials will ultimately find its relief at the Lord's appearing. So he says, until then, you need to be patient with people. And then you'd ask the question, how long do we patiently endure as we wait for the Lord's return? Well, aware of the difficulty of patience, James provides three key components to aid us as we wait for the Lord's coming. He first provides a picture, or a picture is provided. Look back at the text, okay? It says there, see how, verse 7, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. He just provides an illustration. He gives us a, a picture here. He basically says, and you well know this, a farmer plants his seed, and as he plants his seed, he hopes for a harvest. In fact, often in this particular culture, his livelihood, life itself, depended on a good harvest. And the loss of the farm or semi-starvation or death could result from a bad year. So the farmer in this picture is waiting patiently. And he's waiting patiently for the early and the late rains. And what's interesting is he's waiting patiently for two things, these rains that are outside of his control. Now, the scripture, if you look down in verse 7, it talks about an early and a late rain. The early rain was the rain at seed time, and the later rain was the rain of the right that was the rain that came before the ripening of the harvest. The early rain would usually fall somewhere in October or November, and that allowed the seed to germinate. The later rain would fall in April where the grain was ripening, and without those two rains, the earth would be unfruitful. And so the point that he's making to us as farmers wait for the early and the late rains, the believer is to live in expectation of the Lord's return. 
as the farmer is patient, waiting for these rains that are outside of his control, the believer in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, is to live with a very long fuse until the coming of the Lord. In fact, look at verse 8 again. You can see it there. He says, you also be patient. In other words, like the farmer, develop an attitude of patience to the oppression by these rich unbelievers. Do not retaliate. Do not seek to get revenge. And do not become angry. I mean, we may say in our own setting, do not take matters into your own hands. See, our response as a believer is to be different from the world, isn't it? I mean, the world is going to take revenge. The world is going to take matters into their own hand. But when you're a believer, he's asked you and I, whatever your situation may be this morning as you come in, he's asked you to be patient. He's asked you to be long-fused. I'm thinking of Paul when he instructed the Romans in Romans 12, 19, when he said, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, you're to never take matters into your own hands. Paul said in Romans 12, it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here's what Paul would tell you to do in light of those whom are giving you difficult times, difficult circumstances, difficult trials. Paul said in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. It says, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. And so our response to the circumstance, to the trial, needs to be to overcome evil with good. And here, we're exhorted to be patient. So with trials, with people, do not have a short fuse. Be patient as the farmer is with his crops And you have a long fuse because one day all those things will be reversed at our Lord's coming. So he provides a picture. But secondly, look what he he gives us. He says power is supplied. Very interesting phrase. It says in verse 8, you also be patient. Look at verse 8. Establish your hearts. And you'll note in verse 8, he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, that coming that we spoke about is at hand. It's what we call imminence. It could come at any time. It could come during this sermon, could the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's at hand. And so he says, you need to be like the farmer. Number one, you need to be patient. But secondly, you need this power that is supplied. And he mentions that word in verse 8, establish your hearts it's an interesting word. It's sterizo, and it means to just establish. It's the ideal of standing up, if you will, or to prop up. And so in the context here, he's urging those, and it could be you this morning, who are about to collapse under the weight of circumstances to prop themselves up, to stand firm with the hope of the Savior's return. So he says, if you're in the midst of this, you need to establish your heart. It's a very, it's a graphic word here. In fact, the word was used 
I think you might remember in Luke 9.51, where it described the resolute determination of Jesus Christ to go to Jerusalem, to go face the cross, to face his death. And it says, do you remember that phrase? That he set his face like flint. In other words, he did not flinch at the trial that was coming. He did not flinch at the cross. He did not, if you will, doubt as as where he went. He set his face resolutely, is the thought. He was firm. In fact, that word there, established, speaks of resoluteness. It is an attitude or an inner commitment to stay the course. And maybe some of you need to be reminded of that even this morning. You need to establish your heart in these difficulties. Establish your heart in the midst of these trials. You need to have a firm, resolute ability to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. In fact, one paraphrase, the Williams paraphrase of this text said, you must put iron in your hearts. I like that. And again, you know, you're getting back to James chapter 1. You get caught in the midst of a trial. You're tempted to doubt, and you cannot doubt. You need to trust God in the midst of the trial. And here in chapter 5, you, not, you need to trust God, and now you need to establish your heart. So in the context then, listen, instead of bitterness towards your boss, towards your coach, towards your spouse, towards your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, whatever your disease, whatever it might be, towards the rich, towards your spouse, towards your neighbor, towards your relative, towards your roommate, you need to be patient. And secondly here, you need to establish your heart. And you might say, well, pastor, how do I do that? How does one, if you see that in verse 8 there, How does one establish his or her own heart? Well, in the scriptures, it's very interesting. There's a number of things that I would say about this. Number one, I would say to establish your heart is a work of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Okay? So you don't want to just think it's all up to us. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So it's a work of God. But it's a work of God through the Spirit in the believer through prayer, and by His Word. Let me see if I can explain that to you. When I say that establishing your heart is a work of God, I'm thinking about 2 Thessalonians 3.3, where it says that the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. He will, God Himself, establish you and strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. So, beloved, it is a work of God, a sovereign work of God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, speaking of the work of God, it says that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, and here's our word, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That word for confirm there is the word sterizo. So there is a very real sense in the scripture that establishing your heart is a work of God by the Holy Spirit in you. But at the same time, this ideal of establishing your heart comes through prayer. 
And I'm thinking of that text in Ephesians when Paul said in chapter 3, verse 14, that I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be, here's our word, strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And so there Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit. So to establish your heart comes through prayer. And I think that's why James talks a lot about prayer in his book. So on the one hand, you establish your heart. God himself is doing it. But the Apostle Paul prayed that we would be strengthened and established in our hearts. He said the same thing. Look back. Let me just show you in 1 Thessalonians. Look back there. Look back in 1 Thessalonians. Just go back a couple books. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let me show you that there. He's speaking there about prayer. And Paul is praying regarding the church at Thessalonica. And he says in 1 Thess 3.11, May the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord, he's praying, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he, here's the word, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints. And so he's praying that our hearts would be established. And beloved, I would say to us, it's a great reminder when our fellow brothers and sisters in this flock and in the community are having difficult times. We recognize the sovereignty of God to establish us, but we recognize here the power of prayer to also establish us. So it's a work of God, this ideal of establishing through prayer, but it is made possible, listen, through the word of God. In fact, you're in 1 Thessalonians. Look back there in chapter 3 in verse 1. He said there, here, that when we could bear it no longer... He said in 3.1, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to what? Establish and exhort you in your faith. See, ultimately, what an elder, what a pastor, church planner does He establishes people in their faith. And here particularly, he was a co-worker, verse 2, in the gospel. He was establishing them in the faith. And so the gospel is the message. And the faith itself, once delivered for all, was the means by which that would take place. So here's what James is saying. Listen, you have some difficult trials. You may be bound up in a difficult circumstance. You may have a trial that's overwhelming you right now. You may have, and I'm going to be this clear, a person who is afflicting you. In the midst of circumstances, you need to hoop omene under the weight. But here, in the midst of difficult people in your life, you need to be patient like the farmer, until the coming of the Lord. And in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that circumstance, you need to establish your heart. You need to make a resolute commitment to stay the course. Because the one who doubts, you remember in James 1.6, is like the surf of the sea 
driven and tossed by the wind. Let that man not expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being an unstable man divided in all of his ways. You can't be having a divided soul. You need to be resolute. You need to establish your heart. You need to do that through prayer and through His Word that God Almighty might strengthen you. Now, look back in James. He gives the reason why you should do this. Look back. Look back and see what he says there. He says you need to strengthen your heart because here's what's true in, G- in James chapter 5, verse 8. He says, for the coming of the Lord, what, is at hand. You need to establish your hearts. You need to make that commitment. You need to have his word and prayer and understand God's sovereignty. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is near. Or literally, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And again, this is the doctrine of imminency. It's near, and it was near in that time. It's near in our time. You say, but Scott, 2,000 years is nearly gone since he wrote that. I know, but for every day we have, it's 1,000, right, years to the Lord. So this time is nearer to us than it was when James wrote. But he's basically saying here, you need to establish your heart because the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. I'm thinking of John the Apostle when he recorded the resurrected Christ three times saying this in the book of Revelation that his coming was near. Jesus said in 22.7, Behold, I am coming soon. He's coming soon. In Revelation 22.12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. And he said it a third time in 22.20, as you go, pre, he said in 22, excuse me, verse 20, I am coming soon, to which John the Apostle added, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So Grace Church of the Valley, we may appropriately say here that the Lord's coming is near. It's at hand. And so because it's at hand, you need to make sure that you walk in the Spirit, that you're patient. You need to make sure that you establish your heart with firm resolve, recognizing God's hand, recognizing the power of prayer, recognizing the power of the Word of God in your life. I'm thinking of all those texts when Hebrews says, "...not forsaking our own assembly together." as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, beloved, we need to live in light of this reality, do we not? We need to live in light of the second coming. We need to understand the imminency of the New Testament that the day or the hour no one knows. But it's, it's, it, Jesus said it's like a man who goes away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Jesus said in Mark 13, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. Beloved, we need to, we need to be strong. So he says, don't give up. He says, don't retaliate. Finish The finish line is ahead. Christ is returning. But then there's one maybe little problem. So I wrote in my notes, Houston, we have a problem. And look at it. It's the next verse. Do you ever wonder how this figured in? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You ever wonder how in light of the second coming, This gets here. Well, this is just that third final piece. 
that the perpetrator is cited. The perpetrator is cited. He gives us a, a picture, okay? He gives us the power, but now he gives us the perpetrator. And he says there in verse 9, do not, it's very interesting. Look what it says. Do not grumble against, what does he say? One another. And you're asking, how does that connect here? Well, in this way, listen, when we feel the heat of the trial, when we feel the heat of disappointment, it's very easy to complain. We speak very quickly, sometimes very rashly, and impatience with our circumstances can lead to impatience with people and a quick tongue. I know that well. In fact, somebody said that the tight corner and the loose tongue go together. In fact, you remember Peter made a bold vow, but the pressure exposed his weakness, and his weakness found the tongue. So listen, you may even this morning as you come in, and we're going to the Lord's table, you come in and you've been beset by these difficulties, beset by these circumstances. You need to be patient, okay? You need to establish your heart. But listen, you are commanded here to not grumble against one another, brothers, he said. And again, I think it's interesting that it's against one another. Now, that word there for groaning, it's interesting. It means literally, just I don't want you to miss this, to groan within oneself. You might not even share the word with someone else. But you may just be groaning within yourself. It's the ideal of sighing. And it can even be internal and sometimes even unexpressed. And here the complaining isn't against the rich unbelieving on the outside. It's against one another on the inside. Scary. I mean, I'm thinking of that text in Galatians when it says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out lest you be what? consumed by one another. And this must stop. You say, well, why? Look back at the text in verse 9. Here's why. So that you may not be, what? Judged. You say, well, Scott, I thought we sang that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Certainly, there's no condemnation, but the New Testament speaks that you and I will stand before Christ at the Bema Seat Judgment. And we will give an account for what we've done in the body. That's what the texts say. It says that in chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5 here in verse 12. It talks about that in Corinthians. It says that we're going to stand and give an account. And so I think he just says here, listen, the second coming is not only going to provide you hope for the difficulty, but it's going to provide a uh, if you will, uh, a prod, if you will, to get you to move towards holiness, to not grumble and complain against one another. I'm thinking of Paul in Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we will be standing before the Lord. He is the judge. In fact, you better be careful of your tongue. Look at verse 9 again. Behold, the judge is what? Standing at the door. In other words, he's right there. In other words, the second coming could happen as I'm speaking. It could happen today. It could happen very soon. He is at the door. He's ready. He's coming back. And so you need to be patient. 
you need to establish your heart and you need to be careful of that perpetrator of the tongue which so easily in the midst of trial can complain and grumble and be seen that way. So, beloved, here's a guideline. Here's one of them. He says, remember, the Lord is coming. He provides a picture. He gives us the power and he cites the perpetrator. May God lead us to walk holy before him. Would you bow your head with me now as I call the the men up front to pass the elements amongst us in the worship team?